0: This is Dan Figella and you're listening to AI in Industry. Our guest this week is Dr. Charles Martin of Calculation Consulting. Dr. Charles Martin is sort of like a mentor of mine when it comes to AI in the enterprise. He's been doing this work for a very long time working with enterprise clients understands a lot of the ups and downs of what it takes to get this stuff applied within a business context and a lot of the costly errors that come up along the way. Charles speaks with us this week about how to determine your vendor needs. Are you really looking for a consultant? Are you looking for a very specific AI vendor? Are you looking to partner with a vendor as opposed to just buy a product that they already have? There's a lot of different options and really getting that right off the bat might be the easiest way to save money and time. And that's what Charles dives into in this episode. So I hope you'll enjoy some of the insights here. And if you haven't already, this is the last time I'll mention it because it's the last episode of this series. This series is about buying AI in the enterprise and we have a guide, a free PDF guide, called Five Ways to Select the Right AI Vendor. If you are picking a vendor for your company, or if you are considering picking a vendor for maybe a client firm of yours, if you're in the consulting space, then be sure to download that guide. It's free. It's at emerge.com. That's e-m-e-r-j. slash B-U-Y-1. So Emerge.com slash buy one. You can download that guide. Five ways to select the right AI vendor on Emerge.com by simply entering your email. So I hope you enjoy that report. If you haven't downloaded it already, otherwise we're going to fly into this episode. This is Charles Martin, a buddy of mine. Always love talking to Charles here on AI and Industry. Let's fly in. So Charles, we'll kick things off here on buying and procuring AI by talking about vendors, being able to kind of screen through who do we want to work with? Do we want to work with a consulting firm, a, an AI software company? You know, which ones do we want to work with? How do you like to think about that screening process from the buyer's perspective?
1: I guess the first thing I would ask is, do we have a very clear idea of what we're buying? You know, for example, are, are we buying a service to do object recognition and if so does you know is the service usable on the data that we have so is it just a SaaS service that we can just run or are we buying some sort of vertical product that solves a particular need in our industry and maybe it does AI but or maybe it does something they call AI but it gives us an incremental lift or are we trying to bring in a consulting firm to help us solve problems and I think that many AI solutions, a particular vendors who may be selling a platform, for example, may have actually a very high systems integration cost as well as a development cost. And I think that that's, it's difficult to really assess if you don't have a very good understanding of the problem you're trying to solve.
0: Yeah, I was going to say, you know, assessing development cost, assessing implementation cost. It sounds like you'd really need a, a lot of stakeholders in the room to figure out, "Hey, how accessible is that data?" And maybe we need to investigate that or, you know, is this going to work with these kind of systems and who do we need to talk to about that? I mean, it really feels like there'd be a lot of moving parts in getting a sense of how do these alternatives stack up in terms of ease of deployment? How do you even begin to think about that?
1: Well, Look, a lot of AI is very ethereal. It, it just sort of sounds like you're doing this magical thing. And a lot of it is understood metaphorically. Well, it worked in this area, so it should work for in this other area. And we, we have a lot of people who come to us who just do not have a clear understanding of the technology or what it can do. Or they may not understand the fidelity at which they need it. They, they think, well, it, it seems to work and we put it in production and yet it just doesn't have the accuracy that we were expecting or our problem is so nuanced that it doesn't work for our problem we don't get the kind of specificity that we need and i think that it is a problem and people simply do not have experience with the technologies either a general experience with the technology or specific experience with the vendor and it's very hard to gain that experience other than Directly, you know viscerally, you've got to work with the technology,
0: yeah, I mean kind of wild, maybe like the all these lessons have to be learned the hard way. I'm sort of imagining a company that's looking at two different vendors, maybe it's a, a relatively simple use case like fraud, so we're an e-commerce company, we've got you know a lot of chargebacks or you know potentially fraudulent transactions, and we're looking at you know a siF science and we're looking at some other vendor, and we're trying to figure out who among these that, folks that's a
1: really that that's a good look i i knew some guys out here in the valley who worked at one of the major banks and they built the fraud detection system at the bank and then they went and left and built the fraud detection system on their own and sold it to every other bank and you know it was built by guys working at a bank for banks and it did you know it would look well if i live in san francisco and somebody in philadelphia uses my credit card it can figure out that that was probably not me and You know, that was a very specific vertical and it does a very specific thing. And, you know, there may be other people in your vertical who are using it. And, you know, I think a lot of times companies just want to do what everybody else is doing. You know, as with all investing, you need to have a lead. Yeah. A lead customer who can qualify that the product is very good. But if you're trying to detect some very specific kind of fraud and it's specific to you, you know, you may have to invest in an R and D project to figure out how to detect that fraud, and that is hard.
0: Yeah. Now you're working with your own data. You're basically doing your own science in uh, breaking down a unique problem. So,
1: when I was at eBay, we had a fraud. This is ten years ago. We had a fraud detection team. I mean, eBay. You have to understand, eBay is at the scale of a small European country. So, they sure. Uh, are. And we had a detection team when we were doing neural networks ten years ago. And we, you know, and they had a, eBay has an R and D department, but we had a separate department outside of R and D just working on fraud. And you know, those guys I think eventually became Palantir, but some of those guys. But I mean, it's if you're trying to solve something very unique to your specific company as opposed to your industry, if it's unique to your company, if it's your crown jewels, you may not have a lot of success working with an off the shelf solution. On the other hand, if you're just trying to solve a common problem that everybody else has and it's very commoditized and it's very standard,
0: it may be okay. Got it. So should people assume that if this is a, I'm wondering what bespoke means. So like you said, a particular kind of fraud. So, you know, maybe we're a, I don't know, we're we're a platform type business that deals with a certain kind of fake accounts or something that's maybe different than the most common sorts of like payment fraud or something like that, if it's maybe something that we feel is, is unique and no vendor has built specifically for, is it safe to presume that now we're going to be looking more at consulting firms and or in-house development, like almost ubiquitously? Or do we still talk to the vendors that are close to it and figure out if there's a way that they could help? Or is that almost always a recipe for failure? I'm interested in your take.
1: Well, I, I think a lot of the problem with any kind of fraud is that other companies aren't telling you what fraud they're receiving yeah so unless it's you know in their sec filings you're not going to know so i think a lot of times people talk to vendors just to find out what's happening in the space right they just want to know Oh, you guys sold you sold your fraud product to this guy so to wells fargo we're charles schwab we want the same product just to make sure we have it and you know some you may know something we don't look a lot of times people talk to vendors just to, because they're trying to figure out what other people are doing and yeah. a lot of times when you're trying to solve a major problem, you, you end up hiring someone from the industry who knew what they did at another company. Otherwise, it's just hard to know. And that's the problem with things like fraud or security is that they're unknowns. And I think that if we don't, it's not like we have a national effort to prevent fraud. I, look, let me give you a really good example. I mean, fraud in the dating, online dating. I helped a, an old student of mine. He started a company and it got acquired by one of the big dating firms, online dating. And the, the entire product was a fraud selection. What would happen is when people would try to, you know, there's a lot of scammers on these Match.coms and Tenders and things like this, right? Yeah. And they're trying to scam people into giving mm-hmm. you money. <laughs> you know, that's fraud. They're not scamming you. They're scamming the customers on your platform. Yep. So we invented a technology that would create a phantom platform so that fraudsters wouldn't know that they've been kicked off the platform. And that was the key idea. The idea and we remember we, we were just sitting like in a pizza shop in North Beach and I came up with the idea, you know, that those kinds of technologies, you know, is that something that everybody has? Is it, you know, is, do there exist some sort of vendor that could create a phantom platform? So if you have people on your platform that are bad actors, you can make them think they're still on the – because what would happen is the fraudsters, when they find out they get kicked off the platform, they log back in. But if they don't know they've been kicked off the platform, they never leave.
0: Oh, that's cool, okay, yeah, so finding finding like, yeah, so that's super bespoke, so maybe the take home I know we have two other short questions here, but maybe the take home sure. is like if you're looking at a remarkably bespoke problem, maybe your quote unquote vendor landscape you're looking at might be more of a build slash custom kind of a shebang in terms of a consulting firm or your in-house resources versus you know looking for who's got the the plug and play solution
1: and i I think you might find that I and mean, certainly for us, it's true. If you have a small company, you might be solving a problem that other people have, and so you might be able to outsource some of the risk by working with a vendor who would develop that with you. And you know, maybe you own the IP for a year, and then you let them sell the IP. That would be a great opportunity for a small company to come in, develop some unique IP that is in the fraud space or in some other part of AI that they can resell to other companies. And you know, you get exclusivity for like a year. Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah.
1: Maybe you get thirty percent ownership. I mean, that would be a great deal. And I think that's. Otherwise, you're really in, you know, you're, you're a lot of these AI products are. I mean, AI is not a product as much as it is a technology. Yep.
0: Yeah, and it probably, yeah, I guess a lot of the folks tuned in are really looking to solve a problem versus put an investment egg in a basket and kind of roll the dice on some kind of joint venture, you know, AI related thing. However, some folks might have some of that risk tolerance and might be interested in some of that. Uh, but to your point not everything is going to have a plug-and-play vendor solution. I guess the the next question maybe related to this, Charles, is around proof of concepts uh, in AI. I know most of what we've talked about in your previous episodes here on AI and industry have been about, in some regard, all the ways those can fail, all the ways expectations can be wrong, all the ways that it can just flop all When you think about going into a proof of concept right, the right way, you know, we're working with a vendor. Let, let's say in this case, Charles, it is just a, you know, a specific vendor, maybe like a Sift science and fraud or, you know, a Yazdi for anti-money laundering, whoever, it's a vendor of some kind. And we're going into a proof of concept, we're moving forward, we've assessed them against other vendors or whatever, and we're rolling into it. How do we set up a proof of concept to give us the best chance of winning? Maybe we can never get 100%, but what does it look like to do that well?
1: Well th- this is very complicated. Look, a lot of companies mistake building a proof of concept with with running a pilot. And when you run a pilot, it's typically the cost of systems integration. You bring someone in, there's some cost to doing systems integration. Maybe it takes them a few weeks, maybe not. I mean, we've had clients come to us expect a pilot up and running in 4 weeks. And that's going to be successful in cases where the system, you know, your systems are similar to everybody else's systems. And the systems integration is pretty lightweight. And you have to ask who's going to eat the cost of that. Now, a proof of concept, I mean, that might, I think most people think that is limited to about three months. And the reason for that is because, you know, we live on this quarterly financial system and people want to see results in three, you budget quarterly. And the thing about AI, you have to be very careful and ask yourself, look, how much time do I really have to prove this thing works to show that I'm going to be a winner? know that we're going to have a win in the company and despite what anybody tells you and despite all the talk everybody works on the three-month cycle it's just how they think so you've got to really understand can i get this thing reasonably built get it into production can i test it and can i evaluate it in that time frame and you know you may have to go outside your traditional production pipeline and processes in order to get the proof of concept running.
0: You almost certainly will, right? Like you, you've said in previous episodes, AI is not IT. I mean, maybe you, you've got a budget for this to be different, this to be harder.
1: Well, you know, there are all sorts of things that come up. But what the biggest challenge is that you you can't ideate ideas in a process that's been optimized. You know, this is the problem. Companies optimize their process. This is the You know, this is the innovator's dilemma. Right. But I see it all the you know, the Harvard guy, innovators below. I see it all the time. You know, you come in, you okay, I build you a simple prototype. I want the prototype running in I, I want to get it into production as quickly as possible. Pushback, pushback, push back, excuse, excuse, pushback, excuse, excuse, pushback, fighting, arguing, debating, push back. Yeah, you know, look, just get the thing, run it in production, and let's see what it does. And you know, I've had projects where a year goes by and it just can't get into production for one reason or another. And so that may that's a serious problem with any vendor coming in from the outside because you don't know what kind of problem. frequently people don't know what kind of problems are going to come up until they actually start doing the proof of concept. So that, that's important to understand if you if this is your first proof of concept ever, chances are it's going to be 10 times harder than you imagine. There's going to be all sorts of bureaucratic things that get in the way, everything from not being able to allocate a machine to not being able to get accounts set up to – we had one client, they wanted us to have a million dollars in cash in the bank to work with them. Who do you who do you work with? The mob? I mean, who has who keeps a million dollars? <laughs> well, know.
0: yeah, very very million, large, very large consulting firms, probably. But yeah, that's no. gonna it's gonna box out the little guys for sure.
1: Why did you come to us? I mean, you know, why would you come to us? And of course, they didn't know that they had
0: that requirement. And oh even- yeah, okay. Until they learn it later, and now it holds up the whole thing.
1: Right. And nothing yeah. to get done, and then it, it ends up being six. So something that a startup could do. In the Valley, you know, I've had clients in the Valley. I go in, I come in on a Friday, we shake hands. I start work on Monday and the SOW and takes two weeks to complete. And we do two weeks of work before we even sign the contract because yeah. we know it's, we just, it goes to the lawyers and they do their thing. Every other company in the world, you're looking at six months from yeah. the sales, both, both from the sales cycle, internal sales cycle, proof of concept, allocating resources, getting everyone together. So if this is your first time, this is your first rodeo you're going to fall off the cow and expect it. And I think that's where a lot of people starting to do AI products don't realize that they don't know what to expect and they just sort of jump in. And unless the company you're working with really understands how to work within your culture, your corporate culture and your infrastructure, there's going to be, be a lot of delays.
0: Yeah, well, I'm imagining a scenario, somebody's listening in right now, Charles, who is potentially, you know, going to be heading up such a project, or maybe in the next year, 18 months, they will be heading up such a project, and they don't want to get completely, you know, sucker punched with all these new hurdles, because as you mentioned, you know, there's going to be so many of them that come out of the woodwork. Is there a way that they can prepare? In other words, should they talk to other people that have done similar implementations and shake out of them their challenges? Should they grill the vendors in a certain way? Are there general things maybe you could tell them? I'm trying to maybe yeah, avoid I, a couple I, sucker punches here.
1: Obviously, anyone you can talk to listening to your the Emerge podcast is gonna help them. I think that the big thing to realize is that this technology, you know, a lot of vendors try to make technology that looks like it would work. They try to lower the friction. So you can get something inside your company. So a lot of companies will sell you a platform and that platform is designed to lower the friction so you can bring it in. And then you find out, oh, I got the platform, but it doesn't do anything. There's no AI in the, like the AI is actually, oh, the AI means you have to write some custom code or the AI requires a development team in India or something like this. And I I think here, here, let me, I mean, there's all sorts of things that come up and without having executive buy-in and someone driving it forward who really can drive things forward. And can get things done in the organization in a way that you can avoid process hurdles. Let me, let me, let me show you a little something. Like here's another example. We had a company we worked with and we built this recommender system and it didn't seem to work great. It actually, they had actually, we managed, we helped them do it and they made, they built the recommender themselves, one of their junior people. And I kept trying to explain to them, look, you've got to get this thing in front of people early on. And what happened was, nobody would click on the recommendations. And it appears that the reason they wouldn't click on them is they didn't understand why they were receiving the recommendations. So you can do, you know, you get, you can do everything right technically. But a lot of people, you know, but they don't, there's, you have this explainability issue. And that's becoming more and more of a problem inside companies that you can't explain why the AI is doing what it's doing. And that ends up being a barrier that is very hard to overcome. And those are the kind of things that you have to you have to anticipate this. And you know, the problem is that if you don't anticipate, you don't understand user behavior or understand where the product is going. And the product could work fine. The recommendations could be great, but people are like, we don't want it. We we don't want it. Yeah. We don't know. I don't we don't know what we don't know what's under the hood. We're not going to do it.
0: Yeah. <laughs> I, I mean I'm thinking of maybe like a, a crescendo sort of take-home point here as we wrap up, Charles. It's, it seems to me like we may have touched on this in chatting in the past on a number of occasions, but it seems to me like there might not be any way around, like, hey, if you want a POC to have a chance of leading somewhere, you know, you're going to learn a lot of hard lessons and, and you should take that as part of the advancing yourself here. But if, if we want to have this to give this thing any chance of succeeding, we just need the leadership that is sort of okaying the money and maybe sort of overseeing the project success, the champion, so to speak, whoever's. That person to have some of these understandings, realistic understandings of the pretty tough hurdles of doing this in an enterprise, and to really kind of digest this, understand the range of these so that they're not blown away and surprised and disappointed every time they come up, so that they can maybe ride the storm and have a chance of seeing this thing succeed. It seems like there might not be a way around that.
1: Look, I, I think you have to understand how the sausage is made at your company, and you have to have a drive to get things. You have to be able to get things done, even though you don't have the process in place. And it's important to know how to do that. And the person who is the leader of the project. So, you know, there are two types of, of leaders, right? You have a product leader and you have a project leader. The product leader's job is to build the product and make sure it functions well. The project leader is to ensure that things get done. So that someone doesn't say to you, "Oh, we can't do this because it's not on the VPN," or "We can't do this because you don't have a million dollars in the bank." you you've got to have someone who understands in the organization how to work around these process issues. and you know most organizations have people like this. you know they've been at the company a long time, they understand the process of the company, they've had to do other kinds of projects, and they've had to you know wiggle them through the process. And those kinds of people are very. And those are not. That person is not the person who makes the AI decision about what the product is. That person is the person who just is the driver. They sort of they, they they're the navigator. They can get you through the woods. And those people are very important, on especially in an enterprise when you're working with a new technology that nobody understands. People are afraid of. They don't want to do it. And you know, maybe your vendor may not have that much. And, you know, and yeah, you know, you've got to rely on the vendor too. I mean, the vendor wants you to be successful. Right? They want you to For have a sure. win. Sure. Yeah, yeah. They want to brag about it. So you got to, yeah, and they want you to be successful. You've got to listen to them. And and sometimes you know you bring in a vendor, but you know you've also got to realize that you know you're sort of stuck with the vendor you got. You know, you go to war with the people you have. Yeah. As George Washington once said,
0: "Did he now? Go, I don't remember that quote. <laughs> go, I think it
1: was you go to war with the army that you have, not the army that you want.'
0: Okay. Okay. Yeah. Yeah." Well, it worked out for him. So maybe for some of the listeners tuned in, it'll work out for them as well. It, it sounds like it might be a while, Charles, until project managers of AI projects have the kind of contextual understanding that you and I are talking about now. But it sounds like your advice is that person cracking the whip should really understand some of the hurdles they're facing.
1: Yeah, no, it'd be very helpful. And and you've got to move. You've got to have a sense of urgency. That's the other thing that is just. You know, my oh, I used to do gymnastics. You know, so you gotta if you want to do something complicated, you gotta have a sense of urgency. You've got to, you know, there are gonna be all sorts of barriers and you can't, you know, twiddle your thumbs. You know, this is complicated stuff and it's new, and you're you know, you're trying to put a square peg in a round hole. You're working with some new technology you've never used before.
0: In an old and, company.
1: In an old company, and you know, there's just gonna be lots of pushback and you've just gotta be able to go through the mud. But you've got to have a sense of urgency. You just cannot, you know, put this stuff off in a corner and let people chew on it by themselves for six months. You've got to integrate with the company and figure out what the real problems are. But I mean, a lot of times you, you know, you're working on a problem. You don't actually know what the problem is until you've actually solved some other problem.
0: Yep. As usual with with the end of your episodes, Charles, uh, preparing the audience to buckle up for the hurdles that are ahead here, but hopefully some helpful guidance to get them to move through some of these things that they're, they're headed up against as well. And uh, it sounds like all the more reason for the champions to understand the kinds of things we're talking about in this episode, and also to have the sense of urgency that you're talking about, Charles, that if you're going to commit, you got to go all the way. Obviously there's some real costs with not doing that. So I guess we'll wrap on that point, but Charles, thank you again for being able to join us here on the AI and industry podcast.
1: Daniel, thank you. I always enjoy coming on here. It's a great opportunity.
0: So that's all for this episode here on AI and Industry. Next month, for the entire month of February, we're gonna be focused on business use cases. We've done a lot of these overall themes throughout the past couple months. We've talked about advancing your career in AI. We've talked about unlocking ROI. We've talked about planning your corporate AI strategy. Now we're going to talk about some use cases. We're diving into retail and e-commerce for the entirety of February. And in fact, we're overbooked. So already we have six episodes booked for this month when we only have four slots for the podcast. So we might even end up doubling up next month. We're going to talk about personalization. We're going to talk about inventory management. We're going to talk about conversational interfaces and chatbots. There's a lot to discuss in retail, a lot of interesting, useful use cases um, in addition to the best practice insights that we've covered recently, and we're going to be flying into those use cases for the entirety of February. So I'm really looking forward to that. Be sure to catch us next Tuesday here on AI and Industry, and we'll be diving into our new theme of retail and e-commerce.